welcome to all of you. Let's read uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Thus says God's word, you may be seated. So last week in our service, we asked a question. And that question was, what is a church? And in answering that question, we borrowed uh, a definition from a, a, a Bible teacher named Jonathan Lehman. And this was his definition. He says, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now I want you to notice about this definition that it involves five distinct parts. And and then that helps us clearly understand what's being said here. First, it says that the church is a group of Christians. Why is that important? Because it means that that the church consists of people who have repented and believed the gospel as Jesus commanded. It means that not just any group of religious-minded people will do. Secondly, it teaches us that church involves a regular gathering. We're commanded, in fact, commanded in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25, to not neglect the habit of meeting together regularly, and that we're even to do so more and more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. Thirdly, it it shows us, this definition shows us, that church facilitates congregation-wide affirmation and oversight of each other's discipleship. See, the church enables each of us, this gathering called the church, enables each of us to affirm the faithful belief we see in others. But it also gives us the obligation to correct departures from faithful belief that we see in each other. We don't gather... On these Sunday mornings or any other time we get together, we don't gather to simply socialize, although certainly we have a great social relationship. We don't uh, gather so that I can cheer you on and motivate you. We don't gather to simply provide therapeutic relief for one another. But the reason we gather is to represent Christ because we are gathering in his name. And all of these purposes are supported by gospel preaching, and by the administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about more later. When, when these things are happening, all these things, these five elements that make up that definition, it transforms the group of people that meet here from a group of people with just similar interests that might like each other on some level or another. It transforms that group into a group of disciples, People who are representing, representing Jesus Christ, who are standing as his representatives before this congregation and before the world. A great analogy of the church 
is an embassy of the kingdom of God. You know what an embassy is. What is an embassy? It's, a, it's an institution that represents one nation inside of another nation. It declares the home nation's interest to the host nation. Unlike the way that an American embassy represents American interests in Paris or Cairo or Hong Kong, the church represents a kingdom that is not in another part of the world but a kingdom that rather is a part of another world. Not in another part of the world, but part of a completely different world. And more than that, we're representing a kingdom that won't take full effect until sometime in the future. So under this analogy, see, the church represents an otherworldly, invisible, not yet fully received future kingdom. And all the church presence in this world... The reason we're here, the reason we do the things we do and say the things we do and and, and remember the things we remember is so that we can serve as a constant reminder to this world of God's interests, of holiness, of justice, of righteousness. And moreover, the world should see those interests of God demonstrated by his people, those people who are claiming to be permanent residents of that coming kingdom by their acceptance through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So to be a church member, or as I told you last week, a covenant partner, as we're going to kind of adopt that language, to be a church member is to be an ambassadorial representative of the kingdom of God through the agency of the church. Another function of an embassy is to affirm citizenship. Now let's, let's imagine for a moment that you're mountain climbing in Switzerland. Anybody up for that? You're mountain climbing in Switzerland, and while doing so, having the time of your life, your passport falls out of your coat pocket into the vast abyss below. You'd be in big trouble. Big trouble. Because unable to provide proof of your citizenship, you wouldn't be able to leave the country. You wouldn't be able to establish yourself in the country where you were at. But fortunately, you would have a solution available to you if you were in such an unfortunate incident. You could go to the nearest U.S. embassy where they could, through their own records, affirm your citizenship. They could issue you another passport and send you on your merry way. See, the embassy has no power whatsoever to make you a citizen. They can't. They can't make you a citizen. They can't do one of these things over you and make you a citizen. Your birth under the Constitution and laws of the United States does that. The embassy can only affirm the validity of your citizenship. Similarly, we've said this before, but I want to make sure that this is something really clearly understood as we talk about these kind of things that we're, we're embracing. The church cannot make anyone a Christian. You do not need my approval or Daryl's or Don's or Dave's. You don't need any of our approval to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't need to come confess your sins to us. We don't, you, we don't have any incense or holy water to sprinkle on you. None of that stuff. We have nothing. Jesus, his blood, his gospel makes you a Christian. But, don't get too excited yet. Throughout the New Testament, places like we've already talked about, 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, give the church the authority and I know we live in an age that's uncomfortable with authority, but, the, the, but Jesus Christ has given the church the authority to officially affirm membership in the body. To look and say, 
that guy probably is. That guy gives us no evidence whatsoever that he is. That sounds tough, doesn't it? Well, but consider the implication, just to give you one other example we haven't talked about yet. Consider the implication of Paul's instructions to Titus as it pertains to the church's responsibility to affirm membership. This is what he says, Titus 3.10. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, look, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Now, what is Paul saying there? He's saying that if a guy comes in here, or a lady, I'm not going to be a sexist here, if a guy or a lady comes in here and is causing rampant division, and it's a habitual thing that happens over and over and over, and we say, hey, knock it off, as the church, I'm not talking about the, the, the elders, if the church says, knock it off, and they ignore that warning, and they, and they just continue in that path of destruction of the body, and we say, hey, knock it off. And they continue, what does Paul say to do? He says to cut that person off. How do you interpret have nothing to do with him? What is he saying? He's saying affirm what is already true. What does he say? Knowing that that person is warped and sinful and that they are self-condemned. Paul stating that that person's actions prove the state of their soul. And the church is to affirm or deny such a one as truly part of the body. Under the old covenant, the nation of Israel were God's unique people. They were to represent him and reflect his holiness. They had a king, they had a set of laws to help them accomplish this lofty goal of representing him, and they were given national festivals and even the sign of circumcision in order to mark them as unique. The problem was that even with all of those benefits, they utterly failed to represent God or reflect his holiness. In fact, we see in the Old Testament they turned time and time and time again to the worship of idols. And, and by doing so, they were abandoning their position as God's special marked out people. So guess what God did? He fired them. He fired them as his unique people. Because of Jesus' redemption, instead of one nation, guess what we have now? Because of the work of Jesus, God now calls people from every nation. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I don't think we may, but I don't think we have any ethnic Jews here today. I don't think we do. So if you're a Gentile, as I think 100% of you are, this is really good news. Really good news because now the voice of God goes out to the whole earth and, it, and it's calling people from every nation and every tribe and invites them to be his special people. That's exactly the reason that Israel and Leslie went to Greece. Because they were taking the voice of God to call Greek people to know the living God. Because it's not just about one little nation in the Middle East now. It's about the whole world. His voice is going out calling all the nations to come and be a part of his special people. Instead of giving them a king who was just as flawed as they were, who would lead them into idolatry. Guess what? Better situation. Now God himself is their king. Instead of giving them a law that they absolutely would never keep, he gave them 
much better situation. He gave them his own spirit who will live inside of them and inscribe God's law on the inside of their heart. And more than that, the Spirit of God actually enables them to obey God out of love and no longer out of fear. It's a better situation. I'm liking the way this new covenant thing's stacking up, don't you? Instead of festivals, so that they would remember. He gave them baptism. He gave them the Lord's Supper so that they could meditate on all His good gifts, all of His sacrificial work, and they could identify with Jesus' sufferings, and they could remember and celebrate His resurrection together and literally walk in the power of it. And instead of being marked by the cutting of their individual bodies through circumcision, their individual bodies would now be united into His one body called the church as the sign of their membership connection to Him. Now we know, if you've read the Old Testament, if you're familiar with it, we know that there were times in the Jewish history when the Jews neglected the ordinance of circumcision. It was too much trouble. None of the other nations were doing it. So they just kind of ignored it for a little while. But guess what? It was always God's first order for them. He told Abraham way back in the book of Genesis, this is to last forever and ever. Don't ever stop doing this. And someone may have been born to Jewish parents. I can imagine this situation during those times when they were neglecting this. Someone may have been born to Jewish parents and lived smack in the middle of Jerusalem. But without circumcision, there was no way to indicate their status as a faithful Jew. Nothing. See, true repentance for Jews always meant a revival of circumcision. Always. They got back to it. See, many Christians are turned off, especially nowadays, by talk of joining the church. They say, I love Jesus and I do a bunch of religious stuff. So why publicly associate with a local church through covenant membership? Why can't I just be a freelance Christian? Why can't I just be a free agent and keep my options open? Let me tell you, just like circumcision for the Jews, how will your membership in Christ be affirmed if not by the local church? Doesn't have to be this one. But it better be someone. How is your membership in Christ going to be affirmed if not by the local church? I hear your answer. Well, I know in my heart who I am. Sure you do. I'm sure you do. But I can point you right now to many groups, many individuals who claim a connection with Jesus Christ who would be quickly disqualified if their profession were analyzed by the authority of Scripture. They wouldn't, you'd say, well, I'm into Jesus, Jesus and me, we're pals, you know, we're like this. And you could say, well, according to this scripture, I don't think, it's like the guy on on the Princess Bride. I don't think you means what that, I don't think that means what you think it means. And where can you point, show me, where can you point in the New Testament anywhere, Matthew to Revelation, that supports such an isolated, independent view of your salvation? Just me and Jesus. <laughs> On the contrary, association with Christ always... Everybody say always. always. On the contrary, association with Christ always infers, infers association with His body. Uh-huh. Hey, Jordan, turn this thing back on, man. On the contrary, association with Christ always infers association with his 
body. And you can't have Jesus without the church. (gasps) It's a package deal, folks. I've made this somewhat crass analogy before. But if you came to me and you said, Mark, I love you. You are funny. You're talented. You're good looking. I'd say, I know, I know. No, I'm just kidding. Um, If you said all that and you said, but Mark, I cannot stand Ginger. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. I knew you'd have my back. I can't stand Ginger. She's a blanky blank, low down, you know, snake in the whatever. How far do you think you're going to get with me? We're done, folks. No, no need to pass go, collect 200 bucks, nothing. We're done. We're through. And some of us have the audacity to look at Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I love you, but I can't stand your bride. I cannot stand your low-down, stinking, ugly, whore of a bride, Jesus. Gentlemen, how would that raise your blood pressure? And let me challenge your manhood if it wouldn't raise your blood pressure. And Jesus Christ is no different. Okay, I've been bragging on the Bible. Let me prove it to you. Can't have Jesus without the church. Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Everybody wants that. Woo! Let the peace of Jesus rule in my heart. To which, the peace of Christ, to which indeed you were called in one body. You will not have the peace of Christ outside the body. Peace of Christ rules in your heart when you're inside the body. And be thankful. Romans 12.4 For as in one body we have many members and, uh, uh, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, I'm not Mark individually, Dave Walt individually, Danette Weller individually. I am a member of Dave Walt. Dave Walt's a member of Danette. Danette's a uh, member of Glenn Polk, etc., etc., etc. We are individually members of one another. Because of Christ. Christ has united us. Ephesians 4.4. Can you handle one more? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So with all this in mind, let's look at Jonathan Lehman's definition, not for the church, but for church membership. He says, Church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of the Christian of a Christian's discipleship and a Christian's submission. That's a word that we like almost as much as authority and the Christian's submission to the to living out of his or her discipleship in the care of the church. Now, we have talked a lot in the last few weeks and even today about the church's affirmation and oversight. So let's focus the remainder of our time together on this, on submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. Let's look at our text that we read earlier today and see what Paul can tell us about caring for one another. It begins by saying, we who are strong have an obligation It's the third word we don't like. Authority, submission, obligation. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. If that was an American value, not to please ourselves, the advertising industry would go completely out of business. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good 
to build him up. If I look to your left and your right, look around you, behind you, in front of you, you have an obligation to serve that person, those people, for their good, to build them up. See, this is a two-sided coin. Let me explain. It shows us that we have an obligation, as I said, to bear each other's burdens, their failings, their faults, their weaknesses. But it also shows us that we have a benefit in the body of being born up ourselves. I've known a lot of people who have always been there to receive from others in the church. They've received you know, prayer and love and financial support and all kinds of stuff. But they have never, ever demonstrated a readiness to give. Receive, 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 no give, give, give. And conversely, oddly enough, I've known others who, although they had something to give anytime you ask, oh, let me take care of that, let me do this, let me do that, let me bear your burdens, they could never humble themselves to receive anything for the care of their own souls. And, and, and usually they take a lot of pride in that fact. But can I tell you whichever side of the coin you are on, the receiving and never giving or the giving and never receiving, you are in sin. Because in the body, we bear each other's burdens and we allow other people to step in and bear out. But covenant partnership is just that. It's partnership. When I need you, you're there for me. When you need me, I'm there for you. No one can thrive in the church if their relationship is too one-sided. Ask yourself, Seriously, I don't mean this like some rhetorical thing preachers say right now. If you have to close your eyes, ask yourself, am I generally a a giver? Am I generally a receiver? Or can I point to instances in my life in this church or another where I have been both? If there's an imbalance on one side or the other, the Lord wants you to adjust. This passage tells us what kind of selflessness or that this kind of selflessness is rooted in Christ's own example. It said, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul uses this messianic prophecy from Psalm 69.9 to point out that Jesus stood there, or rather hung there, in the face of insults, in the face of torture, in the face of even execution, for God's will to save sinners. The reproaches of those who reproached you. He's saying, God, there are people who hated you, but all of the darts, the fiery darts of their hatred, God, fell on me. And in so doing, he's demonstrating how he loved others and not what would have brought him comfort. To the Romans, see, that... Paul was writing this, it was a shame to associate with the physically or philosophically weak. The Romans were strong. They were the empire. They, they had muscle. They had weapons. They had might. And, and so if you were weak, you were outcast, you were discarded. But Jesus looked on the weakness, the weakest among his people, and he loved them, forgave them. He identified with them. And he saved them. And you know what? You should be happy about that. Because that list, you, it's me, we're the weakest. And now he calls us to live the same way. To love, to forgive, to identify with, and to save those who need saving. He says that all of these things in the Scripture, Paul says all these things in the Scripture instruct us how to live. And that our hope comes from endurance, from sticking with it. 
and from holding to those ancient writings. And then he says this. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying that it is God who inspires and enables such endurance in us and such encouragement. And get this. He does this so that you and I, the church, may live in mutual, sacri- mutually sacrificial harmony. Our harmony comes from the fact that you're laying down your life for me and I'm laying down my life for you. And who did that? Oh, yeah. He says, in accord with Christ Jesus, he's saying, do it just like Jesus did it. Jesus said, this is my command. It actually said a new command. First, he said, you know, he lifted up the second commandment, the second greatest commandment. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then as he stands with his, with his uh, uh, disciples at the Last Supper, he said, wait, whoa, hold on, a new commandment I'm going to give you. A new commandment. And this way he said, he said, love each other even as I have loved you. Not, not, I don't have to love you as much as I love myself. There's now a new obligation on me as part of the body of Christ to love you the way Jesus loved you. That kind of scares me because I don't even love most of you the way I love myself. I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. That's terrible. That's the one, that's the one soundbite that's going to get on the internet. And they're like, this pastor is a jerk, man. I'm kidding. I love y'all. But God, but Jesus is saying that no matter what love I muster, that the standard is always higher. It's always higher to love each other like I love them. And for what grand purpose? is all of this loving sacrifice, this hard endurance and gut-level encouragement. He says, Paul says, that together, I love that word. I'm loving it more and more as we consider this whole transition into covenant partnership. And together, you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Together, with one voice. Jesus has united us into one harmonious voice to bring praise and glory to his great name throughout all eternity. If we can't be members of one body here, guess what? You're going to have a tough time laying your life down for each other sometime in the future. You're going to have a tough time living as a united voice of harmonious praise, glorifying God. How do you ever imagine that you'll be able to do it when you cross the Jordan and get home if you can't even do it here? Don't you remember that this is the great call, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, great call of our lives as believers. It's the reason that we've been saved in the first place. Peter said, but you, the church, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Why? For this very reason, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been saved to be a united people of praise and worship, giving glory to God. And with these purposes in mind comes the command to do all that together. Preferring, serving, loving, correcting, encouraging, and sharing with one another. Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now think about that. How did Christ welcome you? When you came to know him, he didn't say, all right, all right, Sherman, come on in. I forgave other people. I guess I have to forgive you too. No, prodigal son picture. Think about it. The father's waiting at the end of the road. His stinking pig poop laden son is coming down in tattered clothes. And he says, here he comes. Here he is. 
And he goes running after him. Throws his arm around him and says, What is he dressed like this for? This is my son. Get a robe on him. Get a ring on him. Put some new shoes on his feet. Somebody kill that calf. We're going to have a barbecue tonight. That's how Christ welcomed you. And Jesus is saying, to please him as a part of the body, you've got to welcome all of us the same way. New commandment I give you. Love each other even as I have loved you. Being members of a local church, being in covenant partnership, whichever you prefer, is just about that. It's about welcoming those we recognize together as a part of the body of Jesus Christ. We don't do it for entertainment, for therapy, for social interaction, but because our hearts beat with a passion to bring our great God glory. We consider these things, what they mean for ourselves as individuals, as family, and as well as for Northridge Life Church. I want to invite you to come once again to the Lord's table. Now let's slow down or you'll slip in just like I'm capable of doing into routine mode. I want you to come to the Lord's table and I want you to receive this bread that symbolizes His body broken for you on the cross. And through a miracle of grace, the body is broken, takes all of His diverse people and makes them into one body with one King for one purpose to bring our one King glory. We live in an age where many try to craft an identity, a unique identity by, by signaling their values and allegiances on social media and they invite everyone to acknowledge their political and religious and entertainment choices and, and, and try to draw them into debate about their own. But in the body of Christ, see, this is so freeing. In the body of Christ, there's no need for such posturing. It's completely unnecessary. Completely unnecessary. We have... One value, Jesus Christ. We have one allegiance, the kingdom of God. That's it. How simple is that? This makes us really wide and diverse because you can be a part of Christ's body no matter your political leaning, no matter your race, no matter how much or how little cash you have in your pocket, no matter what your educational status is, no matter what your hobbies are, no matter what your skills or your talents. We are one. In Christ Jesus. This also makes us very, very focused, very, very narrow. Because we stand here arm in arm and we say with Paul, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nowhere is our inherent unity seen more than at the table of the Lord. This is true for a number of reasons. First of all, liars cheats and adulterers and manipulators and homosexuals and the violent and the greedy and the selfish and the proud who have been redeemed all have to stop and remember that it is at this place that they brought nothing to earn their way in. There's a bunch of poop-covered prodigals. No one gets to brag as we consider the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ. When we consider his battered, bruised frame and the streams of blood flowing to the ground, we all recognize, we have to recognize that we stand here at this table because of mercy alone. Second of all, we all share the same bread. We drink from the same cup. I don't care if you are the CEO or the dishwasher. There is no VIP line or first class service at the table of the Lord. Joyfully. Together as the body, we feast on the body and the blood of the Lamb of God together. We rejoice together that He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And among those sins 
were mine. And thirdly, this bread, this cup, represents not our individuality, but our togetherness. Paul says this, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You don't participate alone, you participate with others. This bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We, who are many, are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So as you come this week, I'm going to go ahead and ask our uh, community helpers, musician, to come up. And as you come this week, I want you to come with thankfulness in your heart that we are one body. Seriously, look around this room. And just thank God, say, man, God, thank you. Seriously, look around and say, thank you, God, for the body that I'm a part of. Thank you, Lord. And if you're not a part of this body or even any other body, let me invite you in. Hey, the water's fine. We'd love to have you come swim with us. Come, We're not really going swimming. Way too cold for that. Look around. You might want to, as you're waiting in line to receive the elements, instead of just kind of daydreaming till your turn comes, you might want to turn around, shake a hand or hug a neck and say, man, I'm glad you're in the body with me. You might even want to take a second or two and just randomly pray a prayer of encouragement. Just from your heart. We'll wait. We're not in any hurry. We're not in any you know, Bread's not going anywhere. Cup's not going anywhere. Some of you, is it okay to have permission to get real for just a minute? Come on, help me out. I need your... Some of you waiting in line may need from your heart to forgive someone in this room right now. In fact, if you remember the words of Christ, He said, don't you dare come to this altar until you have. And you may need to say, I need to forgive that person. I need to let it go. In fact, some of you may need to ask for forgiveness from someone in this room before you come. Why? Why would you make us do that, Mark? Because we're not a bunch of little broken pieces of bread. We're one body. Why would we let little tears and fractures and breaks get in between us? One body. Please, don't rush to the table. Rush to your chair. Rush out the door. Just take a moment. Let's pray and let's ask God to unite us, not in theory, but in reality, as one body, members individually of each other. Paul says to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Did you notice he didn't break it and say, This is the body? What he's saying is because he was broken, we can be one body. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This morning we compared the old covenant, which I'm so glad has been fulfilled by Jesus, and the new covenant, which has been established by Jesus. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So stand with me. I'm going to ask you, all of you, to bow your heads and close your eyes. should ask the Lord a series of questions. I'm not going to pray some fancy prayer over you. And I want you to, to, we've already had such a great time in the presence of the Lord today. I want you to do business with God and, and, and ask the Lord, say, Lord, are there fractures in my relationship with anybody here today? Come on, it takes a lot of guts to ask that question. Go ahead and ask. It could be one of the leaders. It could be a fellow, uh, you know, attender here. It could be your spouse. It could be one of your children. It could be one of your parents. But is there a, a fracture in your relationship? Why don't you do some business with God and forgive them from your heart and then take the necessary step if you need to. Before you come to this table, seek them out and say, Hey, I need to ask for your forgiveness. Some of you are going to do that and it's going to set you free. And some of you are going to ignore it. I'm not trying to be negative, but some of you are going to ignore it and you're going to stay as miserable as you are right now. But if you'll obey, Jesus will break the chains off your hands and your feet and you will go out of here free. Others of you are just, you're not angry with anybody or unforgiving of anybody or just apathetic your whole life revolves around you you're you're just thinking about how to get ahead and and you know church is something to do to kind of check off a box but man you've never once in your life considered that you need this body never once considered that they need you and so I'm asking for a miracle of grace in your heart to look to the body and say, wow, God, open my eyes so I can see both my obligation and my benefit from being a part of this group. There's other things the Lord wants to touch in you today. He wants to heal in you today. He wants to call many of you to belief for the first time. And remember, belief isn't saying, I believe in Jesus. Belief is saying, I believe in Jesus. And here is the demonstration of that belief in my repentance. And I just want to invite you with love and gentleness to repent and believe the gospel today. The gospel says that you were a sinner, you are a sinner, and that Jesus Christ died and did something you can never do on your own, no matter how good you are, He took away your sin and gave you access to the Father. What a deal. And if you'll believe and repent of all your sins, Jesus will receive you into his body, the church, the kingdom. 
now I just want to release you to do what you got to do. Talk to who you need to talk to. And you are free to come to the table of the Lord after I pray. Father, thank you so much for this bread, this cup, Lord, that represents everything to us. Our only hope in this world and the next. That represents our cleansing, our forgiveness. That represents our unity with people who are so much different than ourselves. We thank you, Lord. Have your way in our hearts. Heal us. Make us new. Unite this body to be an example, to be representative, to be an embassy of your great kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.